Okay, you can uh, take your Bibles. We're in the first book of the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 43 and 44 today. And as we get into that, I just want to give you some uh, family updates. Uh, and just remind you, this year we are uh, challenging our family of Rolling Hills. If, if this is your church home, then um, we want this to be a year of growth. And God says, you know, if you place your faith in Jesus, you're instantly part of a family and the family needs you or it won't be everything God wants it to be and you need the family. And this runs against cultural norms and values um, where we're at. Cause we like to say, hey, it's me and God and that's, it's a private journey. And God's saying, no, that you're not understanding the journey. And so um, you need to be in community. So that means partnering and serving and being generous in the community. And, and that's how God works us synergistically together to, to impact our community and our state and our world. And so, um, so we're saying, hey, let, let's move from being fans to being owners. You know, it's, it's like, okay, I'm not just sitting on the sidelines and going, oh, yeah, I really like the things going on and what they're doing and they're there. And it's like, no, no, it's we. Let, let's, let's own what God's doing in the ministry here at Rolling Hills. And so there's a few ways that we're challenging ourselves to do that and to grow in that this year. And, and we want this to be just a, a great year of growth. We're primed for it. And, uh, and God's growing us in a lot of ways and doing a lot of great things. Um, but one of the things is last week we had a sneak peek tour where if you're not serving and you want to see how can I do an easy entry service opportunity, um, we basically, during a, one of our gatherings, we uh, do a tour and, and just show you some of the things that are going on. And we uh, tour downstairs and show you all the ways that we're partnering with different organizations in the community to make a difference in our community. And uh, we had 25 people who, uh, who were part of that last week. And uh, as far as I understand, 24 of them had made commitments to serve. And um, so that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, there were people who some had been here for years and they were just looking for, I, I just want a fresh way, a fresh place that wherever am I needed to uh, step in and serve. Others, um, last Sunday was their first Sunday here at Rolling Hills. And they go to the sneak peek tour and sign up to serve. And so I uh, love that. And so we, that, that's showing growth and we want more and more of that to happen. Um, I also promised, and actually I've, I've been asked to share because people want to know how we're we doing financially. And so it's like, I don't want to really share, but it's like, no, you have to. So it's like, here you go. I'll let you know. Because um, people love for me to talk about finances. Um, uh, so we, are, we, we have a fiscal year that starts September 1st. And during the summer, um, I let you know at the beginning of summer that we're behind in our fiscal years only has a couple months left. And we made up some um, ground there. So very thankful for that. But now we're starting off in the new fiscal year, starting September 1st. We're almost um, the first quarter ends this um, in October, November, November, yes. And, uh, and we're... $100,000, little over $100,000 behind in our projected giving. Now you say, well, what does that mean? We try to project, uh, like, how much do we project we're going to come, it's going to come in this year, and then we base our budget on it, and then we say, how does that look? How's it going to come in throughout the year? And based upon, you know, years of analysis, we kind of break that out. 
And, um, and you say, okay, projected giving, is that just a shot in the dark? Are you making something up? Are you just making it so big that like, there's no way, even if we're doing good, there's no way we're reaching it? No, our projected giving for this year, which we based our budget on, is based on what actually was given last year, okay? And so it's a very realistic um, projection. And so, so far we're running behind. Are we panicking? Are, no, we're not panicking. Um, but in January, we're gonna, we'll take another look at it and see where we're at. And if we're still 100,000 plus behind, then we need to make changes in our budget in order to have a balanced budget. And so that, and that, that impacts things, it impacts people, and we don't wanna do that. And so um, just be praying. And if you are part of this family and you've been coming, it's like, yeah, this is my home. And giving is not something you do, you, you normal part of your practice, then um, man, I encourage you to pray about that and ask if this is something, well, God tells us, he wants us to be generous and he tells us throughout the New Testament what that looks like. In the Old Testament, he talked about a tithe, which is 10%. The New Testament, he says, you're not bound to 10% anymore, but be generous like I'm generous. It's like, whoa, that's like, uh, that kind of blows 10% out of the water. And, uh, and so, so he's just saying that's part of our growth is, is trusting God in all areas of our lives and contributing to his kingdom. And so let's contribute by being involved, participating, serving, and, and being generous like God's asked us to. And be praying and be praying for um, your faith family. And this is an important year. We want to be growing. We want to be in great shape for um, a new lead pastor that will be coming in at the, um, probably at the end of this year. And that search is going on. Um, last I heard, we had over 45 can, or 35 candidates. And so um, be praying over that as well. We're not, if we know who's applied, we're not telling people at this point because if people are in other churches and so forth, that would not be good. Uh, for that word to get out. And so we're keeping it anonymous at this point. Then when we get to the point where we have finalists, we will um, we'll give you more information on that. But be praying. This is a big year. We want it to be a, a great start as we, uh, as we transition at the end of the year. Um, okay, Genesis chapter 43. Uh, this is the life of Joseph, what we've been talking about, who has faced brutal obstacles in his life. I mean, I would say probably more difficult obstacles than uh, most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room has faith. And he's remained faithful to God. He's just been unwavering in his faith. Um, 22 years from where we're entering the story, 22 years in the past, Joseph's brothers, 10 brothers, sold him into slavery. He was 17 years old at the time. He was taken away, away from his country, away from his home, away from his friends, without his father knowing. And his father was told that, uh, yeah, he was probably attacked and killed by wild beasts. And here's his robe that has blood all over it. And uh, his father thinks he's dead. He's taken to Egypt. He is um, in slavery. He's serving different people. He's being faithful. He's falsely accused of different things. He, can sit into prison. In prison, he's um, being good, he's honorable, he's well-respected, he's incredibly gifted. Other people say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember you when I'm out, and they don't. 
And then finally, Pharaoh has some dreams that are just driving him nuts and nobody has the wisdom to interpret them or the gift to be able to interpret them. Some guy that was in prison with Joseph goes, I remember a guy who was uniquely gifted. Would you be interested in him taking a shot? And Pharaoh's like, yes, I'm desperate. So Joseph goes before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dreams. Joseph nails the understanding of the dreams. We're gonna have seven years where we have plenty. I mean, it's just uh, our, our um, agriculture and everything is just gonna be going great. We are going to be living high on the hog. However, it's gonna to come to an end. And then we're gonna have seven years of a dramatic famine. And so we need to be planning now at times of plenty to be putting away, storing away because bad times are coming and we need to be ready for it. And Pharaoh's going, oh my gosh, this is the only thing that ever made sense to me about these dreams. You are an incredibly gifted person. And not only do I trust you with your interpretation, but will you manage our seven years of plenty so we're ready for the seven years of famine? And he says, I will give you everything you need. In fact, there'd be nobody with more power in our country than you, um, except for me. And so Joseph is put into second in command of Egypt and he manages it well. They go through seven years of plenty. They stock up and they store up and now they are a couple years into the famine. And the famine is not just regional to Egypt. The fam famine is impacting other countries in the area and people are beginning to flock to Egypt because they know Egypt has resources. Now, Egypt, or now Joseph's family is in Canaan um, and they are out of food. And Joseph has 11 brothers in Canaan with his dad and whose families, because they're all, they're adult now and they have, they have families of their own, are on the verge of starving. And so Joseph's dad named Jacob sends his boys, except for his youngest, who is now his favorite, that Joseph has gone, and says, I will not risk losing another son and so I can lose those 10 and not lose much sleep. But this one, Benjamin, I'm keep, I'm controlling him. I'm protecting him. It'll be too much for me to lose him. So sends the 10 other brothers to go to Egypt. They do not know the person in charge is their little brother, Joseph, who they sold off into slavery. And they don't recognize him. It's 22 years later. He, he's no longer a 17 little Joey. He is a um, 39 year old Joseph, the Egyptian, looks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian, okay? I know, yeah, I know, okay. So, um, they stand before him and they're bowing before him and he knows who they are and they don't know who he is. And so he's saying, I wanna know if these are the same guys who are, who are so messed up and were messed up and sold their own brother into slavery? Or have they grown? Have they changed? Because his heart is he wants reconciliation. He wants the relationship to be restored. And so he gives them a test. And he says, I'm gonna keep one of you behind, but I'm sending you the rest of you home. And for you ever to have an audience with me in the future, you need to bring your brother Benjamin because Joseph's going, are you treating him like you treated me? And so he wants to know, has their character grown? Are they still jerks 
Or has God done a transformational work in them? And he doesn't know, and so this is how he thinks he's going to do it. So he takes Simeon, one of the brothers, puts him in jail, sends them home. They go back to Jacob and tell him what's happened. Now, um, before we go on, Joseph gave them a test. And I would say, um, our life is a test. If you're a human being, you know, sucking up oxygen on this earth, uh, you're going to have trials. You're going to go through seasons of testings, difficulty in life. You know, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of bad. There's a lot of things that don't make sense, a lot of injustice, and guaranteed you're going to face it, okay? How do I know? Because you're alive and you're in this room. It, it means you qualify, all right? But I'm a follower of Jesus. Doesn't that mean everything's, you know, all the tests are taken away? It's just, you know, really nice. Well, I would encourage you to read about other followers of Jesus in the Bible and how that went. Okay, it, it, it meant there was extra testing um, that went along with it because people didn't understand what you believed and they assumed wrong things and they accused you of doing wrong things as a result. And uh, maybe you experiencing some of that now. And so here, here's the first thing I want you to get your minds around and just be at peace with, okay? And that is this, if we follow Jesus, we will be tested. It's not if, it's not when, it's a reality. And so look at it this way. It's like, um, sometimes that shocks us. Sometimes when we go through so difficult times, we go, what is going on? Where's God in this? Like it's, this should never happen. And God's going, hey, I've told you this was going to happen. It happens to everybody. We live in a broken world. There's a lot of chaos. It happens. And so... Take advantage of the opportunity. Don't look at at it like um, God is trying to break you, because he's not. But he is saying, this is an opportunity for you to see where you're at. You know, how are you doing? Are you where you think you should be? Are you being exposed with, man, there's areas I just don't trust God. You know, Jacob is a control freak. He thinks he can control the world to protect his son, Benjamin. And he's panicked that this famine is happening and he might not be able to do it. And that's not a good place. And so it's an opportunity for us to grow. If you're a good parent, you let your kids go through difficult times. You don't rescue them all the time. And sometimes you want to, and I'm telling you that, I think many times is motivated, motivated by selfishness. We don't want to go through the pain of seeing our kids struggle. And so we try to save them from it. But we're robbing them of opportunities to learn and grow. Because while they're under your roof, um, you have the opportunity to coach them, to encourage them, to, to be there for them as they go through difficulties of life. Because once they're out from under your roof, they're going to go keep going through difficulties in life. And if you've been protecting them their whole lives, they're not going to know how to be a mature individual and step into those difficulties um, with, with a sense of understanding and a sense of I can trust God in the midst of this. In fact, that's a good choice. Instead of making decisions that would just say, this will get me out of pain as soon as possible, and so I'm going to do whatever it takes to get out of pain, which many times leads them to more pain. But they haven't gotten the wisdom 
to know that. And so God's a good, a good father and he's good to us. And he says, we're going to go through this stuff, man, trust me. And as you go through life and as you fail, don't get bitter, but get a better understanding of where you're actually at. I trust you, God, you lose income. How's your trust doing in God? How does how you're managing your income doing? How, you know, where is it reflecting where your heart is and where, where your trust is? I mean, yeah, I am, I am good trusting God until, like what's your until? And so in your season right now, what's the test? And it may be, man, things are awesome. There is no test. No, that's a test. How do you handle when things are going great? Times of plenty. How, how do you handle it? What does a life look like that's faithful to God in that season of life? And that is normal, and that will continue. So how is this season testing you? How is this season testing you? It is, we just need to be aware of it and say, okay, what does faithfulness to God look like in the midst of this? All right, so the boys come back home. They come back home without Simeon. And they said, hey, for, me, for us to go back and get more resources, we have to bring Benjamin with us. Jacob says, nah, no way. There's no way I'm risking Benjamin after I've already lost Joseph. Because Benjamin and Joseph are the two boys that um, Jacob had through his, marry, or his marriage to Rachel. And he was... He was in love with her at first sight. He loved her. He loved these two boys more than his others. As he's demonstrating now, bummer for Simeon. I don't care. You're not going back for him. I'm not risking Benjamin. And that's where he's at. Until several years later, a couple years later. Two more years of this famine and they've gone through the supplies. They have eaten all the grain. They have run out of supplies. And it is desperation. And he's at risk of losing um, his family to starvation. And so he goes back to his, his sons, the 10 that were there, or actually the nine that were there now, and says, uh, you need to go back. Go back to Egypt, get some more supplies. And they say, we, we can't go back without Benjamin. We will not even get an audience with the second in command who's the one that we buy supplies from. He's made it very clear. We're not getting an audience with him unless Benjamin goes with us. And then Judah, one of the brothers says, Dad, I promise you I'll protect Benjamin. And if something happens to him, you can blame me for the rest of my life. Blame me and my family. And he steps up and he says, I'll, I'll take personal responsibility. And so Jacob says, okay. But now that you're going back with Benjamin, the money that that guy gave you, you know, he gave you back the money that you paid for to get all the supplies in the first place. Um, I want you to take twice as much money back to him to show them that not only did you not steal it from him, but you're giving 
twice as much back in honor of his authority. And so you're giving him a gift. And so Jacob is saying, we got to up the ante because Benjamin's at stake. You know, the other guys, eh. Benjamin, I like Benjamin. I mean, it's just brutal, brutal, messed up family. Um, he is not a poster child for how should you be a good parent? Okay, he's a messed up parent. So the boys go back with Benjamin, 10 of them now. Simeon is in jail. Joseph is their brother. They don't realize. They go back and they stand before Joseph. And Joseph sees that they brought Benjamin. And so Joseph tells his servants, hey, um, take him to my house and prepare a meal. And tonight I'm going to uh, share a meal with these guys. And so he does that. And then in verse 32, now, so we've, I've just talked you through most of 43, or 43. So now in verse 32, they served him, Joseph, by himself and them by themselves. So this was customary, okay? And so there's a, there's a hierarchy here. So Joseph gets served by himself as, as the head honcho. Then they get served as a separate outside group who are guests. And then the other Egyptians in the household who are part of Joseph's staff, they get served separately as well. So three different groups of people. And here it is. Why? Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for it was an abomination to the Egyptians. Um, and, and their culture, which is like most other cultures throughout history, and we see it over and over and over again, the Egyptians saw themselves as superior. Any other group, any other people group, uh, they saw as lesser than them. And so here are these Hebrews coming from Canaan and they're shepherds, which they have a special, um, they, they despise especially. And so they are put by themselves as a different group so that they don't pollute the Egyptians in the house. And they're looked down upon and, uh, and Joseph is watching them. Joseph watching them. Verse 33. And they sat before him and the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. What just happened? These Egyptian um, uh, servants in the household set down these Hebrew brothers in chronological order. And now Simeon's there and Benjamin's there. So there's 11 of them. They sit down 11 brothers in chronological order. Like I could probably do, okay, you two are probably the older ones. You two are probably the younger ones. But 11 of them, I looked it up. You know what the chance is that they got that right? One in 40 million. Yeah, and I had a mathematician come up to me afterwards and said, that math is correct. It's actually 39. You know, it's like, well, you know, 40 million. It's good for me. Um, one in 40 million. They had to be sitting there going, how do they know? I mean, are they just that smart? Are they have that discernment or that wisdom? Are they especially gifted from God? What's going on? And Joseph is watching them. And then this happens. Verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of the others. And they drank and were merry with him. They didn't have a problem with it. 
Who's watching? Joseph, who was the favored son, and they hated him for it. Benjamin's now the favored son. He's being shown preference, and they're having a good time together. Like, whoa, Joseph's going to be, wow, what's, what's, what's going on here? That wouldn't, wouldn't have happened 22 years ago. You know, in that society, if you want to show somebody a special honor, you gave them a double portion. You know, many places in the world today, and uh, you know, I've, I've had a chance to go and visit some of our ministry partners in different parts of the world. And um, sometimes those places are impoverished. But as a guest, I will come into a, a home that is impoverished, and I will be given so much food. And if I make the mistake of cleaning my plate, it's not staying clean long, where much more is piled on. You know, in our society, you know, we're thinking, well, I need to be, I need to help my guests be healthy. And so sometimes you go to somebody's house, maybe you don't know them that well, and they serve you dinner, and you, and you go, oh, I know what's happening here. You're putting me on a diet. <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah, just like, ooh, okay. And then uh, typically what happens in our household is we swing through Taco Bell on the way home. Um, <laughs> but that's not most of the world. And it's not what's happening here. Here, give you a double portion. If, if I can figure out, if I invite a group like this over to my house and I can figure out what, what, how much food is it going to take to fill them all up, then I double that. Because the worst thing that could happen is I, if I came close to running out of food, that would be so dishonoring. Giving twice as much is honoring. Five times as much is just, I mean... It's outrageous. And yet the brothers are handling it, and Joseph is watching. Joseph, the next morning, verse 1 of chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, the man who, who ran the house, um, fill the men's sacks with food and as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack. Okay, it's deja vu. First time they were there, they paid for grain and supplies. And Joseph, without them knowing, paid for it out of his own pocket and put all their money that they had given to buy those supplies, put all that money back in their sacks. Same thing, except this time he goes even farther. And what he does is he says, not only put their money back in their sacks, but take my best chalice. That is my personal um, chalice that I drink out of made of precious metal and stones and put that into the sack of the youngest. And then tomorrow, wish them well, send them off. But after a few minutes, I want you to follow them. Go after them, catch up to them and accuse them of stealing from me. My personal things have been stolen and you guys did it. So do that. It's a test. So that's what happens. Joseph's servants catch up to his brothers and said, you guys have stolen from us. You've stolen our master's personal items. And this is how the boys respond. They said, that's not us. We don't do stuff like that. In fact, if you find stolen goods in our, in our um, bags, then whoever's bag you find it in, 
you can take his life and the rest of us will be your servants forever. That's how confident they were. Now, it's probably lacked wisdom. You know, it's like even if you're confident, you're going, well, something strange could have happened. I mean, last time what happened? But they're confident. 22 years ago, would they have been confident? No way. It's like, I know these guys. These guys are basically scum of the earth. If they have a chance to rip somebody off, they're going to do it. Like, I don't know about it, but this is not surprising. But now they're saying, hey, that's not us. That's not us. Don't do, you've got this wrong. You're accusing us of something that's not true. So they go back to, to Joseph. And in verse 12, it says, and he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And so again, he's going, I know your chronological order. He's starting with the oldest and he starts going down the line and looking in their bags. And they're seeing that once again, he put their money back in there, but they didn't take anything of his. And so they have to be going, seriously, you're going to look through all of them? I mean, isn't a few of them enough? And they had to be getting pretty cocky. End of verse 12. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes. That was a sign of deep remorse, deep regret. And to their soul, that they were shocked and overwhelmed with grief because it was hitting them. We promised dad that we were going to take care of his favorite son. And now, for some reason, he's probably going to die under our watch. And so they're hurting for their brother and they're hurting for their dad. In verse 16, and Judah said, when standing in front of Joseph, when they're back in front of Joseph, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now think about this. Were they guilty of what they were being accused of, stealing from Joseph? No, they weren't guilty. What's Judah saying? We're not guilty of what you think we're guilty of, man, but we're guilty of so much worse. We're getting from God what we deserve. Judah is, is, is having a clear perspective of who he was and the guilt that still haunts him as a result. Now, Judah's an interesting guy. In this verse, Judah's stepping up. He's taking responsibility. And now before Joseph, with his brothers around him, he's stepping up again and just saying, we didn't do this, but we've done some really messed up things. Now, in, in the story of Joseph, and we skipped a couple of chapters. And, um, and some of you know it, and you've talked to me about it, and it's like, okay, I'll, I'll go back to it. In the chapters, in the life of Joseph, it, it takes a little pause, and there's a chapter on the life of Judah. 
and how messed up he is. And so let me just give you an overview of it. Um, Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. They come home, they bring Joseph's clothes that are all torn up and soaked with blood to their dad so that dad thinks he's dead. He's been killed. And dad has lost his favorite child and he is over the top um, upset and in grief and, and in depression. And it just changes his perspective of the world. And he is one hurting dad. Judah sees this and goes, get over it, dad. I mean, this just makes me so, I, I can't even watch this. And so Judah leaves the family and leaves dad in the most traumatic time of his family. And he doesn't leave for a weekend. He leaves for years, years and years, and just abandons his family when he's just so disgusted with them grieving over the loss of a brother and son. So he leaves, he goes north. He goes with one of his favorite friends who whenever they're together, they get in trouble. And that's what happens here is, is Joseph goes up north. He ends up meeting some people. He ends up meeting a woman. He marries her. She is, um, she is a pagan godless woman. He ends up having kids with her who are pagan godless kids. Um, two of the sons are named Ur and Onan. And uh, easy to remember Onan, uh, Onan the barbarian. There you go. Um, Ur and Onan. Ur gets married. Ur, get this, Ur is so evil that God says, I'm taking Ur out. Um, the world would be better off. People around Ur will be better off if Ur's gone. And so he takes Ur out. Ur's married to a woman named Tamar. There is an ancient custom that was practiced by ancient societies. It was a common custom. In fact, later on, in, um, the, in the law, it will be, this custom will be borrowed. But that is, in that day and age, women did not have property rights. They, they, um, if, so if they were married, their rights were connected to their husband and their children. And so that um, if the husband died, then his children still held on to their rights, their rights to the land, the rights to the portion of the inheritance. So if the husband died, the woman was destitute, had no, um, nobody taking care of her or no right to any income. And uh, your family of origin didn't have any responsibility to you because you joined another family. So the dad of that family, if had a son died who was married, he would say to another son, it is your responsibility now to marry your brother's widow and to give them a child, which will not be your child, it will be their child, who then owns the rights to the inheritance. And so it was a way to take care of widows. Messed up, okay? I mean, it's like, oh, thank the Lord that we're not living in that, you know, but that was the normal thing. And the dad had the responsibility to say to, the, to one of his sons, you need to step up for your brother who's deceased and take care of his widow. And so that's what Judah did. And so he goes to Onan and says, you need to marry Tamar 
and give her children, give her and your deceased brother children to, to take part of the inheritance, okay? That was the normal practice. That's what they did. Um, problem is, Onan is just as messed up as his brother Ur. God looks down and says, I'm taking you out because the, the world and people around you are, uh, are being damaged and hurt because of who you are. And what's best is for you to be gone. So he takes Onan out. Now Judah's going, this woman is a black widow. I've given her two sons and she's killed both my sons. You know, she's, he's basically blaming her. So he's got another son named Sheila. He, he says, I'm not giving you Sheila because probably God will take him out too. And so you're on your own, Tamar. So he does not honor Tamar. He does not take care of Tamar according to the customs and laws of their day, but says, hey, you know, good luck. Maybe you can go back home. So that's Judah. A couple of years later, Judah is on a business trip with his buddy who's troubled. And uh, they're, they're, they're shearing their flocks, okay? They go away from home and they, they spend time with the flocks for a few days. And basically it's equivalent of, you know, when we shear flocks, what happens with the flocks and around the flocks does not get shared at home. And so um, they go into town and Judah finds a prostitute and, uh, and, ha and is with the prostitute for the night. Little does he know Tamar has it out for him because Tamar has been ripped off by Judah. And so Tamar, now a few years later, disguises herself as a prostitute. Judah sleeps with Tamar, giving her children, has, has twins, and uh, doesn't know it. Judah is like a, a cesspool of a man. He has no character. Now, 22 years later, something, he seems different. What's going on? You know, what's going on is the grace of God. The grace of God can change people's lives and cause things to happen for eternal good when we are failures. Our dependence upon God is not based upon how good we are, but it's how good God is. And Judah is an example. Do you know who Judah is? Judah is the father of one of the 12 tribes. The descendants of the tribe of Judah are his kids. Who are some of those people? King David from the line, the tribe of Judah. Who else? Jesus. line of Judah. In, in the Gospels, you look at the genealogies of Jesus and it ties back in their genealogies to Abraham. Do you know where Jesus came through? The tribe of Judah. And it is the only family unit mentioned in, in the genealogies. You know who that family unit that Jesus came through was? Judah and Tamar a godless Gentile. And that led to the line of Jesus. 
See, sometimes in the midst of our trials, we're going, where are you, God? Where are you? And I may not know where God is, but God knows where I am. And I may not be knowing what God is doing, but God knows what I'm doing. And God is about his good. And he's just saying, join me. Join me. Testing are opportunities for us to grow stronger. Judah is learning slowly. But God is doing a redemptive work in Judah. Um, He grows us up through testing. We don't like testing. Uh, Something true about me that you don't want to know, but I'm going to tell you anyway, is that ever since I was a kid, when when I would go on hikes or do whatever, uh, if overexerted myself, I would throw up. It just still happens to this day, okay? When I played sports, and you know, you do daily doubles, or we would call it Hell Week, and um, the coaches pretty quickly found out about this unique talent that I had. <laughs> and so literally, they would be running us and working us, and they would start yelling, where's town? Town throwing up yet? Town puking? And it would just, you know, and the guys are going, puke, Bill, puke. And it's like, oh, I just can't happen, you know? And that was the truth. I hated that process. Hated it. But as an athlete in the fourth quarter, I didn't hate my coaches anymore for that. I was thankful for it. Or as a wrestler in the third period, I was thankful for it. And we, we, we don't like testing. But God's saying there's opportunities in our life to reveal how, how are you doing and you're trusting in me through this time. And if you remain faithful to me, you're going to grow. And the next time it comes along, you're going to have confidence in the midst of a trial that you'd rather not be living with, but just because you're living, they happen. But you're going to enjoy me more. You're going to have more confidence as you go through it. And you're going to, you're going to trust me. And so here, here's in all of life's tests, the correct answer is always the same. Do the right thing. Trust God. So in your life test, right now, what's the right thing? What's the right thing? What does it mean to trust in God? Now, some of you are going, hey, I, I'm kind of new in the spiritual journey with God. And I, you know, as you talk about these stories, I know other people know these stories. This is all new to me. First time hearing these stories. I don't know a lot about what God wants me to do. And I want you to know um, God has put in your soul some truth that you can hold on to, that you can be confident in. He says he's put into all of our hearts um, how you can honor him. Things like honesty, integrity, depth of character, kindness. All those things ring true to us because they're all reflective of the character of God that he's placed in us. And so he says, trust me. In the midst of the testing and trial you're going through, what is doing the right thing look like? I put that in your heart. And then in Proverbs chapter 4, he says this, which is just a cool verse. It says, but the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. He's saying, do what you know is right. And you know what? Next, next, the next day you're going to get more, more clarity. It's like 
God has his light or his hand on a dimmer switch. And as you're choosing to step into the light and do what's right, he's cranking up that light and giving you a little more and giving you a little more. You go, man, you know, I, I don't know if I have enough to get through the day. And then you, you know, God gave me enough through the day, but I can't get through tomorrow or the next week. But, you know, then tomorrow he gives you enough for tomorrow. So do the right thing. What's the right thing? And you're testing right now. What does it look like to honor God? Judah was stepping up and he was being a man. He, he goes, goes back to Joseph and he says, I told my dad that I'm responsible for Benjamin's safety. And so would you take my life instead of his? I'm offering my life for the life of my brother. 22 years ago, the preferred child, he said, let's get rid of his life. Now he's saying, take my life. That's substitutionary. That's saying the punishment that is meant for my brother, would you give it to me? Would you give it to me? That's a foreshadowing of the ultimate substitutional sacrifice where Jesus says to God the Father, the punishment that people deserve for neglecting you, for rebelling against you, for ignoring you, when you gave them life, life to live with you, God, and people have turned their back on you, that punishment that they deserve, we put it on me instead. I'll take it. I'll take it for them. And that's what Jesus did on the cross for us. Substitutionary atonement. He said, put it on me. Put it on me. That's love. Sacrificial, humble love. And that's what God offers to all of us. And so I just encourage you to close your eyes, bow your head. Um, in the quietness of this moment, commit to God to do the right thing, to think the right way, to love the right way. In whatever season and test that you're in. And then for some of you, you're recognizing that I need to trust in God in the forgiveness that he's offered to me because of Jesus being the substitute for me. And so talk to God. You just say, God, I ask you for your forgiveness. I know that I can um, be selfish. I can try to control everything, even though I know that it's impossible. I do things that I think is best without consulting you or even thinking about what you care about. And I know that that is wrong. And I ask you to forgive me. And I want to trust in you and what Jesus has done for me for that forgiveness. And it's in your name I pray, amen. And Father, I pray for each person here as they take steps of faith this week in honoring you in the midst of the circumstances of their life, that you would bless them, that you would give them a sense of peace, that you would give them confidence, and just give them a, 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 an understanding that you are with them and that that is palpable to them. Thank you for that, Father. In your name we pray, amen.